You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. All right, now we come this morning to the second Sunday school class on the subject of shall we baptize children? And as I said last week, and as you're going to see on the PowerPoint screens in just a second, I'm going to be treating this subject in three parts. Part one is initial reflections, uh, which I gave both a personal and pastoral chronicle of my own experience and, and life on this issue, as well as talking five premise convictions that uh, we're assuming as we go into uh, this study, things that I don't think I need to prove, but I did want to mention. And we did that last week. So this morning we start part two, which is scriptural foundations, scriptural foundations. And as I said, last week, uh, we took up the present controversy, the personal chronicle, the premise convictions. This week, we come to scriptural foundations. Now, I've come across some interesting material that seemed like a, a good introduction to our study, and it has to do with the practice of our Reformed Baptist, our Reformed and particular Baptist forefathers on this subject. Last week I shared that Mark Dever and Capitol Hill Baptist Church, among other prominent uh, Calvinistic Baptists, practice adult-only baptism. Here's part of the statement from their website in which they state their understanding of historic, particular, and Reformed Baptist practice on this issue. They say, while it is not generally known among American evangelicals today, the practice of baptizing pre-teenage children is of recent development, largely early 20th century, and of limited geography, largely limited to the United States and places where American evangelicals have exercised great influence. Baptists in the past were known for waiting to baptize until the believers were adults. Baptistic Christians around the world are still much more cautious than modern American Christians, often waiting in Europe, Africa, and Asia to baptize until children are grown or in their 20s. Now, I found that both an interesting and informative statement that kind of challenges maybe some of the assumptions with which many of us were raised. <clears throat> and so I ask our own very, our very own reform Baptist historian expert, Pastor Ron Miller of Clarksville, Tennessee, if he agreed with what Capitol Hill's website said. And here's what he wrote back to me. Yes, I do. And to the best of my understanding, that is a very accurate historical statement. The only possible improvement I would make is that the word preteen could also be replaced early to mid-teenage and still be accurate. I've been setting the age of baptism in the 17th century for the particular pilgrims broadcast. What I have found is that the particular Baptist practiced adult baptism. This is their common way of describing their position. Other historians agree that this is their view. They, of course, argued against infant or childish baptism. These names seem to be rooted in the legal system of the day. People of age were called adults and everyone else was an infant. 
I often wondered why there weren't other categories like young child, older child, teenager, etc. in the literature. But it seems they were working with these two legal categories in their minds. The earliest stage of baptism I can find is no earlier than 16. This matches being of age or of the age of maturity or adult in British law at the time. So a person could marry, make a contract, etc. So this was the age they could join themselves to a congregation by covenant or pledge as the Baptists typically did. And since baptism always led to church membership, they weren't separate questions or events. Baptism had to happen at a time when they joined a local church. Of course, Baptists of the time most often describe baptism as that of believers, but when they discuss age, it was only done as adults. Finally, in my study, I don't see any change in this until the 1800s in revivalism. There's another brother who has studied the 18th century and found the practices to be the same as in the 17th. From my reading, I would agree with this. Now, if you're like me, you may find these assessments of Reformed Baptist history surprising and even shocking given the common practice of Baptists in the United States today. But of course, the issue is not what tradition, or even our own tradition, says, no matter how old. The question is, rather, what is it about the Bible that led to their practice, and which we may have overlooked, and what is it that uh, the Bible actually teaches. Those early Baptists believed in sola scriptura. We must too, and so we must ask, what does the Bible say about this issue? And that brings me to the first of several uh, headings under which I want to talk about the scriptural foundations for the decisions on this issue. And the first one is what I've called the biblical theology of minor children. A biblical theology of minor children. I think something that is commonly appreciated among us is, is really actually true as well. The present generation of so-called evangelical Christians is not known for its depth of biblical knowledge. One of the things that led me to feel a call for the ministry in my early college day was the growing conviction as I began to understand the Reformed faith that there was a bankruptcy of biblical knowledge among such evangelicals. This abysmal lack of biblical knowledge and doctrine is manifested in many ways, but it's also manifest in what I call a terrible naivete about children, which leads to superficial practice with regard to child evangelism and, yes, the baptism of children. What is necessary to correct this is what I am calling here a biblical theology of minor children. There are a number of seriously important, but I think sadly neglected, passages on this issue. In the remainder of this class, I want to set them before you in order that you may feel their united force and implications clearly. I'm thinking of this, ladies, like a collage. Now, I, I know when you do a collage, you do a pictures, you don't just throw 25 pictures on the on the cardboard, you have a, a theme or a vision or a thought that you're trying to convey. At least, uh, I think, I think you do. Although I'm a man, how would I know, you know? But anyway, I think that's what you do. And the passages I'm going to put before you this morning give us a kind of collage, a kind of collage of, um, of new, of New Testament passages which taken together have a significance that goes beyond what any one of them individually might say. 
All right, so the first passage that I want to turn you to is 1 Corinthians 13, 11. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. This passage reads, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Let me ask a couple of questions by way of exposition of this text. What is the context of this statement? Well, some good men believe that in this context, context, Paul is contrasting the condition of the church before the completion of the canon and the condition of the church as to knowledge after the completion of the canon. But I rather think that in the context, Paul is contrasting the condition of the church in the relative darkness of the present age with the light and glory of the coming age. This is what is in view when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. This is also what is in view, in my opinion, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, with regard to this contrast, Paul searches, I think, searches his mind for an illustration. The one he hits on is found in the text. To illustrate this contrast, he points to the difference between adults and children. And that leads to my second question. What are the ways in which Paul contrasts children and adults? Well, Paul uses three key verbs here to make that contrast. The first contrast uses the common word meaning speak. This is a general word. It is the same one used so many times in 1 Corinthians 14 to describe speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy and speaking in general. So, um, and, and John Gill comments on this passage as following. When I was a child, I spake as a child that cannot speak plain, aims at words rather than expresses them, delivers them in a lisping or stammering manner. Hereby, the apostle illustrates the then present gift of speaking with diverse tongues, which was an extraordinary gift of the Spirit, was peculiar to some persons and what many were very fond of. And yet this, in its highest degree in exercise, was like the lisping of a child in comparison of what will be known and expressed by saints when they become when they come to be perfect men in heaven. So there's a contrast with regard to speaking. Notice there's, there's also a contrast with regard to the word thinking. Thinking. Now the verb think refers, of course, to the mind. And Matthew Poole comments as follows. See on Romans 8, 5, the kindred noun, phrenes, occurs only once in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, where also it is associated with children in the sense of reflection or discrimination. Uh, the revised version renders felt, but the verb, as Edwards correctly remarks, is not the generic term for emotion, though it may be used for what includes emotion. The reference here is to the earlier undeveloped exercise of the childish mind, a thinking which is not yet connected reasoning. Now, I want you to look at the two passages that Poole mentioned here. Look at Romans 8, 5, first of all, Romans 8, 5. 
which reads, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. (laughs) Christians and non-Christians focus their minds on two different objects. That's the point of the text. And now turn over to an even more relevant text, 1 Corinthians 14.20. 1 Corinthians 14.20. Which reads, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking, yet be in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So what does Paul mean by do not be children in your thinking? Well, he tells us in the rest of the verse. He wants them to be immature with regard to their experience of evil. With regard to that, he wants them to have a childlike innocence and lack of understanding. But with regard to their thinking, he wants the opposite. He wants them to be perfect. The original says, but this is the common word used in the New Testament for maturity. Children are immature in the way they think. They do not think like mature adults. And on this fact, Gill remarks as follows. I understood as a child, and so does he that understands all mysteries. In comparison of the enlightened and enlarged understanding of glorified saints, the people of God, who are in the highest form and class of understanding in the present state of things, are but children in understanding. It is in the other world, when they are arrived to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that there will an understanding be men. The third contrast here comes in the use of the verb reason. When I was a child, I reasoned like a child. Now, this word is the word from which we get our logic and all of our English words that end in ology, that speak of scientific understanding. It speaks of how one reasons or carefully and logically thinks through something. We laugh at our children because of the funny way they sometimes reason or think. We hear many funny stories from our daughter about the way our granddaughters think and reason. One day, one of them, Molly Beth, was told by her mom to go play play outside. And she complained, I do not like the sun. Well, many such funny things does Molly Beth say because she reasons as a child. The fact is that children think or reason differently than adults. And again, Gil, I thought or reasoned as a child whose thoughts are low and mean and reasonings very weak. And so are the thoughts and reasonings of such as have all knowledge here below in comparison of that perfect knowledge, those clear ideas and strong reasonings of the spirits of just men above. But when I became a man, I put away childish things, childish talk, childish affections, and childish thoughts and reasonings. So when the saints shall be grown to the full age of Christ and are become perfect men in him, tongues shall cease, prophecies shall fail, and knowledge vanish away. And in the room thereof, such conversation, understanding, and knowledge take place as will be entirely suited to the manly state in glory." So what do we conclude from this passage? Well, uh, we must certainly say that Paul understood there to be a very great difference between the understanding of children and the understanding of adults. At the very least, we have to say that this difference 
must be taken into account in assessing the spiritual condition of our children. They think, they speak, they reason like children and not like adults. But the second passage to which I want to turn you this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 reads, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Now in this context, Paul is speaking about the purposes for which Christ gave various gifts of ministry to the church. In verse 11, of course, he names apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now this leads Paul to enlarge on the purpose or necessity of these gifts. Why were they given? The need for such gifts, Paul says, arises from the immaturity of the church's understanding of spiritual things. The purpose of such gifts is to remedy that immaturity by bringing the church to a mature understanding of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And as in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, so here, Paul searches for an illustration to describe this maturing process, and his mind once more goes to the very natural illustration of children versus adults, the children who need to mature in their understanding into adulthood. But here Paul proceeds to speak of the danger in which both children and childlike church members find themselves. Verse 14 speaks of this danger, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Children and childlike churches are in danger of being deceived because of their immaturity, Weakness and because of the instability of their understandings. And so Simpson comments as follows Believers are to be children, yet not absolutely such. Certain qualities of the child they are to emulate, for if destitute of its simplicity and guilelessness, they cannot possess true infancy of heart. But childish traits should be shunned as resolutely as childlike graces should be fostered. What is here censured is the fickleness of children's volatile moods, shifting like a kaleidoscope, dazzled by the first glittering bauble or flimsy distraction that catches their eye, and liable to be beguiled by every siren ditty of allurement with an earshot. How incongruous with And he quotes some probably well-known British poem. How incongruous with Christian hearts of oak is this humorsome and ductile temper. Now this reality points us to the difficulty of attributing stability and permanence to the affirmations of our children. 
Those childlike pronouncements and statements cannot be trusted to remain stable. There is inherent instability and vulnerability to deception in children. Now, this is a good thing for parents to remember. They don't need to react in alarm when their five-year-old makes some heretical pronouncement about God or the Bible. They simply need to correct that pronouncement. That pronouncement does not carry the same weight of permanence as that of an adult. But another application of this natural instability of children is that their good commitments and proper decisions cannot be regarded with the same weight as those of adults. We may regard such commitments and decisions with encouragement. With encouragement, we ought to encourage such positive things in our children, but we ought not to attribute the same weight and stability to the commitments and decisions of a 10-year-old as we do to the commitments and decisions of a 20-year-old. To make that mistake is to neglect the instability and immaturity of children and to be uh, infected, I think, with the naivete of this generation of Christians about children. The application of this to our evaluation of the professions of faith by children seems clear. We should be encouraged by them, certainly, but there should also be a certain reserve and caution about them, which should make us refrain from trumpeting the triumph of the gospel far and wide because our four-year-old says that they believe in Jesus. <clears throat> but that brings us to a third passage. Please turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 18 to 23. This is the account of the blind man whom Jesus healed. And verse 18 begins this way. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then does how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now we, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Of course, the interesting thing about this passage is the statement twice made by the formerly blind man's parents. Both in verses 21 and verse 23, they make the statement, he is of age. Then in both statements, the natural result of being of age is stated. In verse 21, they conclude from this uh, fact that he will speak for himself. In verse 23, they simply add the practical consequence of his being age. Ask him, they say. 
clearly in their minds until they reach a certain age, children are not able to or have authority to speak for themselves in important matters like giving testimony in some legal case before the state or before the church. Now, I'm not attributing any kind of inspiration here to the blind man's parents or any kind of authority to what they say when they use these words. At the same time, it's certainly clear, isn't it, that they're reflecting in some way a cultural norm which governed Jewish society at the time. There is a parallel statement in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, which I'd like you to look at. Please turn there. Uh, and which kind of confirms the common sense idea that until they reach a certain age, children are not able to speak for themselves. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the approach, reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Notice the assumption contained in verse 24, when he had grown up. It was then that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be identified with the people of God. The language of the text literally says, when he had become great, but all the major English translations recognize that this is a reference to his maturation into adulthood. The NIV, the RSV, and the ESV all translate exactly as the New American Standard. The King James Version translates, when he was come to years, and the New King James Version translates, when he became of age. Thus the idea of the blind man's parents of coming to a certain age where one can speak for himself is not an idea that is peculiar to them. It really looks like a culturally wide norm, a culture-wide norm, and does thus not reflect something that, and I think in a sense, has the force of natural law. Children cannot speak for themselves. Their parents must speak for them until they come of age. It seems to me that this notion has both natural law and special revelation behind it. Now, if that is the case, it's necessary to ask then the next question, isn't it? You're asking it already, aren't you? You're asked, necessary to ask what age in Jewish society children became able to speak for themselves. And as a matter of fact, when you read the commentators on John chapter 9, there is a consensus on this issue. It's not something that they find difficult uh, to uh, explain. John Gill remarks, he is of age at man's estate, as with the Jews one was, who was at the age of 13 years, if he could produce the signs of puberty. You want to ask me later what the signs of puberty were? You can, but I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, and such a one was allowed a witness in any case, uh, was not, and such a one was allowed a witness in any case, but not under this age. 
nor if he was arrived to it if the above signs could not be produced. This man very likely was was much older, as may be thought from the whole of his conduct, his pertinent answers, and just reasoning. Wherefore, his parents direct the Sanhedrin to him for an answer to their third question. Alfred Barnes says this, he is of age. He is of sufficient age to give testimony. Among the Jews, this age was fixed at 13 years. Both Lee and Morris and William Hendrickson confirm this interpretation, saying that at 13 years and one day, a boy was thought to be of age. Now, I also checked Jewish websites on this issue. Would you like to know what they said? Well, I don't, I'm not going to quote what they said about their modern and corrupted Jewish practices. But I will, go, I will quote what they said about the uh, Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud, okay? In rabbinic literature, primarily the Mishnah and Babylonian Talmud, with respect with respective editorial dates of approximately 200, uh, 200 Christian era, and 550 Christian era, the ages of 12 years and one day for girls, and 13 years and one day for boys, the ages widely regarded traditionally as the threshold of adulthood began to take on significance. Interestingly, they add this. At this point, a 13-year-old boy is obligated to participate in public religious fast. Likewise, any vows he might make are to be regarded as valid. And then it goes on to talk about the uh, criteria for this chronological uh, marker for boys, which are uh, physical maturation and moral discernment. And some of what that uh, physical maturation involved is then discussed. Um, But physical signs, they go on to say, are not enough. He must attain a certain age as well. From the point of his birth until he is 13, he is called a boy or a baby. And then after that, he is understood to be an adult. Now, obviously, uh, I am not saying that ancient Jewish teaching is authoritative for us. I am only saying that it sheds light on the embodiment in the New Testament of a clear distinction between childhood and adulthood. This Jewish teaching makes clear that children are not able to make certain adult decisions and commitments. Okay? Let me go on to the fourth passage, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask questions and so forth. But the fourth passage kind of rounds out this this New Testament collage, okay? Turn to Acts 8, 12. Acts 8, 8 and verse 12. This passage reads, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Now this passage, of course, takes us out of the realm of traditional Jewish practice and into the realm of authoritative Christian practice. And what does it teach us? Well, it certainly does not, and I'm not saying that it does, Uh, It does not deny that children were baptized. At the same time, 
in light of all that we've seen already in this uh, class, it's difficult not to find substantial significance in its report of Philip's practice in Samaria. When we ask who were baptized, the answer supplied by the text is really quite clear. It is believing men and women. And the word used for men and women here are the words which may be translated husbands and wives, but which always have for their normal meaning adult males and adult females. Now, while this is the only passage in Acts which speaks of the baptism of adult males and females, it is parallel to another statement in the book of Acts, and this statement tends to confirm the implications which uh, I have drawn from it. Turn to Acts 5 and verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Now, once more, there's no mention here of children. It is adult males and adult females that are added to the number of the Jerusalem church. And such addition took place, of course, through baptism. Acts 2.41 is parallel. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Thus, while the text does not deny that children were baptized, it is completely silent about that, and in the context of the well-understood distinction between children and adults practiced in Jewish society and assumed in the New Testament, I think this silence is golden and instructive. It certainly points to the conclusion that baptism is for adults capable of making adult decisions. Baptism is a vow. Baptism is a covenant. And children in that society were understood not to be able to make such vows and covenants. All right, but now there's much more to be said and a lot of other things to be considered about this. So this isn't the end of the story. It's the only the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, if you have questions and comments, you're certainly welcome to contribute them now. Glad to talk about it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.